Hey, damn guys. Welcome to Book Club Member Comments. Hey. My name is John Hi, Salinas. John. I'm here with Aubrey Loveless. I'm Danielle. And I'm Wes. 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 Awesome. He walked instead of uh, was driving. So it took him longer to get here. <laughs> so that's why. Okay. Okay. Yes. So. From the corner. Yes. From the corner. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wes, for coming on and, and hanging little, out with us. And his little car that, what are they called? The Matchbox? Like a little Hot Wheels little or Hot something? Wheels car. It's like the key. It's little Hot Wheels like car. Like the key. The key yeah. in the back. Oh, I remember those. <laughs> and he drives it, ooh, across the hardwood floor. And it bumps into the chair, and that's how we know to pick him up and put him on the table. <laughs> for the podcast, he has a tiny little microphone. Yes, perfect. Um, I, I love all this. He uses an old spool as his as his seat, <laughs> as his chair. It's an old wooden spool. <laughs> sure, okay. That you put, you know, like the kind that oh, the thread man. for your anyway, sewing projects. Um, Wes, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Yeah, no problem. Excited, excited for it. See, Wes, I just thought you were far away. I didn't realize you were that small. My bad. It took him a long. Yeah, I'm small. Yeah, yeah. That's why kids can never hear me. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Wes. Thank you so much for joining us again to talk about some Baltimore. I also wanted to start off this episode by thanking Mark Tweedell. Mark Tweedell, book club member. Yes, Mark Tweedell for hanging out with us last week on our impromptu episode. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, Thanks for letting us wake you up. Yeah, thank thank you, Mark. Normal sized human. <laughs> yes, I should say this is our book club podcast. We're reading comics and we're reading actual books and the actual book club this week. We are. And we're talking to our friends. And now Danielle's going to tell you all about it. Uh, <laughs> so, what we're going to do. So we're going to tell you what you're going to read and you're going to read it and we're going to read it. And then you're we're going to talk about what we read. And you're going to listen to us talk about what we read. And then you're going to talk about what we talked about when we talked about what we read. And then we'll talk about what you talked about when you talked about us talking about what we read. And that's friendship. Yes. And that's a book club. Back to you, John. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome, John. It's yeah. a service that I begrudgingly provide every, every week. Yeah, you do it begrudgingly. And you could have easily just thrown it to Wes, too. Oh. Since we have a guest on, you always forget to do it. But oh, I love you I'm too small for those kind of things. It's funny that you already did it. Oh, Wes. <laughs> it's funny that you already did Wes, it. Wes, you could jump in anytime, buddy. I could. Oh, why? But I'm tiny. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, but uh, we did have a lot of fun with Mark last week. Did you check out that episode, Wes? Uh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Mark is such a good sport. So he had some great Twitter GIF reacts. Did he? To the episode. Oh, really? Oh, good. Yeah, it was pretty good. Okay. Uh, you can check this out on Twitter. He said uh, the Gandalf GIF where he's like, I have no memory of this place. Yeah. He says <laughs> that's how he is when the episode starts off. Oh, yeah. When we asked him what his favorite comic of the year was, he shared the what is what year is it? Oh, right. Williams, <laughs> and he also he also posted the we have to go back loss. Yeah, uh, I say that to well. you a few times a week. Yes, it's coming to we the normal to conversation. We have yeah. to go back. <laughs> yeah, but I think that Mark wants <laughs> to maybe revisit that conversation, uh, or maybe we'll have to come back and ask him more about. Yes, that all these he... gifts feature completely unhinged, <laughs> bearded people. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Thanks again, Mark. Uh, we'll look forward to having you on after you've had your coffee and breakfast and you haven't just woken up out of your slumber. Oh, yeah. And now we're going to go on to our listener feedback. Listener feedback. Get out, trades and floppies. Get out, hardback copies. 
Digital is fine. Read along in time. Get out, trades. We heard from Peter Winthrop. We did. We heard from Peter Winthrop. Book club member. Mm-hmm. He's yes. a book club member. He said, hey, you damn guys. Hey. Uh, regarding our Scott Pilgrim episode. Okay. Ooh. Scott really does just suck. He does. <laughs> he does. He's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Peter. Terrible man. Very good. Famously oh, terrible man, I, Scott I Pilgrim. I the Scott Pilgrim video game. Okay. Oh, yeah. I did, too. I went ahead and picked that up. It was yeah. on sale. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to... you had that? I have it for Xbox. I see. But okay. now but we now have, it I have it Switch. Now we both have it on the Switch. Well, now y'all so can we, play it Yes, together. we That's can fun. play it. That would be awesome. We need to do that. And die, like, in the first stage or oh, whatever. God, that game is so hard. Have you ever played that game, Wes? The Scott Pilgrim uh, beat-em-up? No, I have not. And I actually didn't read the book before you guys picked it up. I've only um, seen the movie. Oh, yeah. Did you oh. check that out? I did, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I really enjoyed that. I'm excited to get to some more of that. Maybe... Um, if we have time next month, we can do another one of those. Very good. Definitely. We got a Hey Damn Guys from Drew Campbell. Drew Campbell. Book club member. I got to agree with Mark about Chrono Trigger. Yes, Chrono Trigger. Says Drew Campbell. I never played that. That's one of my favorite games, too. And I still play it every now and then on my PS3. I also own the big old multi-disc CD soundtracks for that and the sequel, Chrono Cross. Oh, I love nice. a video game soundtrack. What's your favorite yeah. video game soundtrack? Oh, FF8. Okay, what about you, Aubrey? That would, yeah, that should have been. Do you have a fa- favorite video game music? It's kind of a tie between FF7 mm. and Ocarina of Time. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay. What about you, Wes? Any video game music that you get stuck in your head? I mean, Ocarina of Time is good. I could I could sing Ocarina of Time or, I guess, whistle it or hum it. No, no, you should definitely sing it. <laughs> <laughs> Just make up my own lyrics. I will say that the Animal Crossing soundtrack is something oh, you can like, have on that. your headphones at work or something. Yeah, though. Like, that's, that's good. Great. For me, it's all about Mega Man 2. The Mega Man right 2 on. songs nice. are like my favorite. I have them all as like different ringtones and stuff like that. Okay. Really good. Nice. Yeah. Oh, of course, and there's always the Mortal Kombat techno song from the 90s. Oh, <laughs> so, okay, that was by the, you're talking about the one by the Immortals, right? You know, it's when it yells out, Mortal Kombat. Yeah, but that was, <laughs> have you heard the entire soundtrack? Oh, yeah. My friend used to play it in his car all the time. It's it's yeah. the it's the most incredible thing you've ever you heard. If you haven't that. heard this, <laughs> to be clear, we're not talking about okay. There's there's a it's a different one than I think the like what some people are referring to like the one from the movie itself. But like there's one it's it's by the Immortals. That's the one we're talking about. If you haven't ever heard it, or you're not sure whether or not you've heard it, please go listen to. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube easily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually had that on a cd like an actual cd okay ridiculous just the most absurd (laughs) thing you've ever heard but uh fantastic in in a lot of ways in some ways although i do love that movie version it's so (laughs) cheesy the characters each have their own song right right. it's about each of the characters (sighs) if you want to know what it feels like to be absolutely out of your fucking mind (laughs) to be insane to be an insane person just listen to that soundtrack okay Anyway, I will agree with you on that. (laughs) True Gamble continues. My favorite games are the games made by Fumito Yuda. I hope I'm pronouncing this person's name correctly. Ico, Shadow of the Colossus, and The Last Ah, Guardian. Okay, nice. Uh, And The Last Guardian. I think you guys would appreciate the minimalist storytelling that the games employ. You get the immediate story, but the history of the worlds are left mostly up to interpretation. The atmosphere in the games is totally unique, as far as my experience. 
and Shadow of the Colossus has some awesome giant monsters. And The Last Guardian has a giant cat slash bird slash dog animal. So like a chimera, I suppose. Okay, cool. That is your companion throughout the game. Cool. They're pretty different from most people's idea of what video games are supposed to be, but they have my highest recommendation. Nice. So I've played Shadow of the Colossus. That was one of those games that I started playing um, because I heard it was really good because I bought it recently. It's like an old school game or it's older and like probably like the new Resident Evil came out and I stopped playing it and started playing that. But um, there are these giant monsters and each stage is like a monster, a colossus. And like the the stage is basically you climbing the monster and strategically taking it down. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the whole the whole level, the whole stage is like you're on the thing trying to it's so weird. Yeah, I, it's really weird. I watched people play that one. I haven't actually played it myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You ever played any of those games, Wes? No, I haven't played any of those, but what uh what are you playing? Are you a gamer? Do you like I mean, I games? used to be. I haven't really been playing games lately, though. I mean, I played a lot of Pokemon. That's a good soundtrack, too. It's not a bad one. Oh, yeah. You were going to say something about yeah, Pokemon, right? Super well, Mario Bros. Yeah, weren't you? Last week, we were talking about um, games that we played as, you know, growing up or whatever, some of our favorite games. And I can't believe I just totally forgot to mention I played a lot of Pokemon. I love yeah. Pokemon. It's a great game. Great series of games. What's and, your favorite uh, one that you played? They're, well, you know, I mean, they're all... They're all different. Uh, I'll never forget the first game that I played. The first, po- I, the first Pokemon game I ever had was Pokemon Red. The first Pokemon I remember choosing was Charmander. What about you, Wes? Pokemon games. I mean, I played Blue Red. I didn't. I don't know if I went too much further past that. Um, what was, oh, really? What was the first one that you picked, or whatever? What was your yeah. Charmander? Yeah, I was a Char- I was a Charmander fan too. Okay. I went through them all. Yeah. I did them all. For sure. Yeah. But I don't know. I was like, I did a lot of Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy 7 was good. I played a lot of Final Fantasy 7. I didn't get as into 8 right. as I did with 7. But 7 and 8 were my favorites. 7 I yeah. played over and over and over and over. But I don't know. Like, then when, like, my brother had his son and then he started getting to, like, first person shooters. And then we, me and my brothers lived different places in the country. So we played Halo. We'd, like, meet up and play Halo. Were you, like, teabagging people or whatever <laughs> isn't that what people do when they play halo um i feel yeah. like i'm one of the only people that didn't play final fantasy i never played any of those games oh wow i never played any of them i think you would like them yeah he has no interest in playing those games i don't know i just he uh, won't do it i can't get him to do I it i just never i just never got into it i don't know and like there's too much other stuff that i like right now i feel like if i was looking for something like i was like oh i need a new game but well, it's like I'm almost overwhelmed with the right. games that I want to play right sure. now, you know? And for Pokemon, I was like, oh, you should try and play it. And then, uh, so I got you into like Diamond and Pearl and you're like, oh, this is okay. And so we got Sword and Shield. I was like, do you ever have any interest in going back and playing like the original game? You're like, absolutely not. I will not do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, I've played a little bit of Pokemon with, you know, Sword and Shield or whatever sure. and the DS one, but like. I could. I don't think I could go back and like play the Game Boy one or Aww. whatever. Like I'm not gonna. It's do good. That. No, <laughs> Zelda's good. And, and then I don't know. So I guess the Final Fantasies. I could. I could play the remakes. Those like remastered ones. That you know. I don't know. Maybe I need to get one. So of those. I, I started on the Game Boy with those games. Like yeah, I, I'm not gonna do love that. those games. They're so good though. They're still good. Like I just recently replayed Final Fantasy three for the Game Boy, and I oh, yeah. love that you were game. Playing that it's like really crazy. good. Yeah, yeah. Like. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. Okay. 
Did you guys ever play um, the Hellboy game? Did you ever play the Hellboy game, John? I feel bad. like you're the only oh, one that potentially would have. It's bad. Real bad. The Science of Evil. So there's a funny story about that. Uh, I, I played it the first time. When it first came out, I got it and I played it and like it just kept glitching on it's me. It's not good. And like it was making me upset that like it was uh, just messing up. And so I just never really played it. And I was like, uh, I watched I, him try to play this game. He yeah. struggled with this game there was for so long. Part he really where it just kept, kept like, trying to, out or whatever. to play this game. He really um, did. And then I bought it again recently because I saw, I saw someone on Twitter posting about it and they were like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Like, I guess you get to a part where Lobster Johnson comes out or something oh, like that. And man. I was like, man, I would love to check that out. So I bought it again for super cheap, like five bucks or something. And I started replaying it and I just really couldn't get into it. And then around the same time, um, Andrew Adair was like looking for a copy of it. A- Andrew Adair, book club member, um, he wrote our Witchfinder theme for us. Witchfinder. Yes. And so I was like, hey, I'll, he was looking for a copy of it. And I was like, look, dude, I'll just give you this copy that yeah. I have because I'm not going to play it. No. And at least you'll play it. And he messaged me that he played it and it was fun and he like got a kick out of it. So I was like, man, I should get this game again. <laughs> <laughs> I should get it for I a third time. It's either third time. It's either third time's a charm or three strikes and you're out. <laughs> well, we've been talking about yeah. Lost a lot and uh, there was a Lost game that I never played. So I finally, oh, this fucking game. <laughs> I finally picked that up. Oh my God. So I picked it up because so I've been watching him play this game. I like to watch him play games because it's it's incredibly entertaining. Because uh, I get to talk through the whole thing. So I got first like, of all, I got significantly through the game and then it mm. glitched out. I, I at least got, got to the second episode. Yeah, you did get to the second episode. I was in the middle of the second episode because it's divided into like seven episodes or something oh like that. My God. And I was in the middle of the second episode and it and it glitched out the the disc messed up and then when i went back it hadn't saved any of my game so i was just like oh that's some bullshit so now this is another game where i have to buy another copy because i don't want to start playing this copy again and then it's going to mess up again and not save anything it's going to be a waste of time i will say that all that aside it was very entertaining watching watching you struggle to play this game (laughs) was was very entertaining it was really fun we were laughing at it are you a lost fan wes yeah i was a huge lost fan so I oh, was like, I, I lived in Stanford, Connecticut when Lost came out and my group of friends, like we would meet up like two hours before the episode aired and watch the two episodes before. Wow. And we had a, like a no talking rule. You couldn't talk. Sure. But then we yeah, just we talked nonstop for hours after. And yeah. then I lived, I lived in Manhattan for a little while and there was a Lost bar around the corner oh. from where I was living. Wow. And the and they would play Lost all day up until the episode aired, and you get you get all the tumblers at the bar were all Lost like different bar. stations. They were oh, stations they were from stations. the Dharma station. Yeah, the Dharma wow. station. So you could have Dharma station tumblers wow. while you like went there. I only was there one time. It was like it wasn't a good place to go watch Lost. No, I'm sure. What was the bar called though? Was it called like I don't. Oh my god! I should text my buddy Mike. He would probably remember. Net. Is it still there? No, I don't That's think I don't. Maybe. Probably not. Yeah, I want to go no. to there. I no. want to go to it. That game, it was, it was entertaining at least. Maybe I'll come back and give you an update on that later. Good video game talk there. So, also last week we were talking about tea. Oh, okay, yeah. And so there was one of my favorite teas I totally neglected to mention, and I, it's an oolong. We talked about oolongs in general and and white teas and all that stuff, but this specific particular tea, uh, sold by West China Tea Company uh, in Austin, by the way, is called Duck Shit 
Oolong. Hmm. It's an interesting. Okay, I know that's a ridiculous name, but it has it's an interesting name. Uh, let's see, mother plants of a uh, bush are raised to an age of seven to ten years before cuttings can be taken from them for the purpose of cloning. And each year, only a limited number of clones are propagated without causing excessive damage to the mother plant. However, it's not uncommon for unscrupulous tea farmers, seeing their neighbors hard at work breeding new varieties, to steal the plant by taking cuttings of that plant and making their own clones. And so this apparently is something that happens in the tea world. Who knew? Um, So the person who did this amazing, beautiful, gorgeous tea, he named it duck shit in the hopes that it would discourage people Uh. from taking the plant, like (laughs) taking cuttings of this plant and like selling his tea and stealing it. So it was like to throw people off of it to be like, oh, this is duck shit. You don't want that. Right, right. So in any case, it became like one of the most popular varieties, maybe either in spite of or because of this name. So uh, it's actually a very good tea. I I really like this tea. And I tried it. I'm sure like most people be like, duck shit. What is that about? But it's actually (laughs) like my favorite tea. Like when I'm comparing it to some of the other teas I drink, I'm like, this is just so duck shit is an extremely fragrant varietal with prominent notes of honeysuckle, jasmine and sweet almond this tea is charcoal roasted by hand and the, and the traditional style so it's very good it's got a good body to it it's nice. nice and buttery it's really pleasant to drink so uh if you want to do yourself a favor you can get yourself either the spring or the snow variety of that tea so it's really good stuff. Okay, so that's, this has nice. been tea corner tea corner and things i forgot to talk about yeah and things all i forgot th- to talk all about all wrapped into up one. into one yeah it's very good thank but, you so much ted actually reminded me my yeah. sister-in-law texted me today she said uh I'm suddenly cra- craving blueberry chamomile tea Aww. or decaf orange spice. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Those are both really good teas. They are. What about you, Wes? What can you contribute to Tea Corner over here? Oh, man. I'm not a, I'm not a tea person, I guess. Oh, I really? Know. I don't give it enough. I do, I'll do. i do sleepy time tea. Like I, I'll do that sometimes before bed. I like sleepy time tea. Right um, okay. Hey, that counts. Yeah. Hydrate yeah. yourself. Absolutely. John, like I said, John was not a tea person by any means. And just yeah, us living together for long enough, he was eventually going to become a tea person, I think. I will explore yeah. some tea there. for the book club. I will do it. Yeah, pull, so I'm going to send you some, I'll send you some teas. tea. Yeah. I'll send you a, a, a sampler of some of my favorite teas. Nice. How does that sound? Sounds good. Let's do it. Good for winter. Excellent. You could just move me to the tea cabinet. To the tea cabinet. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll just do that. For a little while. Yes, we'll definitely do that. And now, Danielle, I release you to the wild. Are you releasing me into the wild? Yes. What am I going to do out there? Um, Forage for around for forage. snacks. What kind of snacks? <laughs> Blueberries. Mushrooms. Like Oh, various mushrooms. It is mushrooms. Oh, there you go. Various but I don't mushrooms. Know. I, I don't know if we should encourage foraging because there might be people who don't understand the difference between a deadly mushroom and a non-deadly mushroom because sometimes they look the same. Okay. So. Maybe forage for um like little fruits and nuts. I will. I'll do that. Yeah, nuts. Okay. I'm going to go forage for apparently for nuts and berries <laughs> All right. and, and fruits and things like that. Yes. Look to make what? Where you're out there. Look for some marshmallows. <laughs> do they grow? On, where do they grow? <laughs> they do. Somewhere. I don't think that's true. We have a special so. tree that grows them. Hmm. I'll have to investigate this. Yeah. I'll make some sort of a cobbler afterwards. Yes. Yeah. With the ingredients that I forage. A nut Do cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a crumble on the top of it. I'll grind them up and make it like a streusel. There you out go. Of them. That makes Sounds sense. good. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Bye.
And now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. And this week we're having actual book club because we're actually reading the Baltimore novel, Baltimore or the Steadfast Tin Soldier and the Vampire. Go ahead, Wes. I'm going to jump it over to you. Yeah, you've been joining us every almost every month um, yep. to talk about Baltimore. We already did the whole omnibus of the comics, and now we're coming back to the novel. And I thought like it was kind of nice that we took a little bit of a break. It was nice to have like a little, a little bit of a break and then come back to it and kind of like, I don't know, remember it a little bit or have there yeah. be a little bit of space between jumping right into it. So yeah, this has been really great. So yeah, go ahead, Wes. We're going to read two parts of it today. Um, the prelude Requiem, as well as the first chapter. I guess it's a, t- it's a chapter, right? Arrival. Uh, Kyrie. I don't know how to say it. We'll have to go pronunciation corner. <laughs> on the on, on the audiobook, the guy says Kirari or something like Kirari. that. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. So that's my attempt. So then I did, I did think we needed to do a warning for this one. I thought about it um, just because like the content is pretty graphic and there's like pretty graphic war scenes and gun violence. So, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. The book was published in 2007 by uh, Bantam written by Mike Mignola and Christopher Golden with illustrations by Mike Mignola. He did the cover and all the illustrations on the inside. Oh yeah. And I guess I I didn't realize he does have a writing credit too. So I wonder what that collaboration is like between him and Christopher Golden, because the the book came out first, right? Before the comic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. I have to say like, um, had I had no idea what this book was and they didn't have the subtitle, the 10 soldier of the vampire. Had you just handed me to read Baltimore and I would start reading this first, this first prelude. It's like a pretty accurate description of what, what play you like in a world war one type setting. Right. And it's just like, Oh shit. Am I about to read a war novel? Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It definitely reads as a war novel. Kind of like all quiet on the Western front or something like that. Right. Right. But then all of a sudden he gets to the, to the part, you know, where the vampires show up. Yeah. It was all like, ah, but of course I knew that was coming, but I mean, just like the first, like several pages is nothing but like, the war and the guy getting uh, cutting the bob wire yeah, and then yeah. snapping and cutting his face and yeah. the, the medic has to come up and all this kind of stuff and then the flares pop out and they're just illuminated on the on the battlefield and it's just like oh they're dead right you know yeah. I mean and of course I knew that but it's like reading it like this it's just like wow yeah yeah it really adds like a whole other level to it. And the way Christopher Golden explains some of the parts or Mike, Mike, whoever wrote, you know, a lot of the way things were explained are pretty, it definitely like hits you a certain way. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of foreshadowing. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know. I don't know. I, you guys, do you guys have a hard copy of the book? The the cover is like beautiful. The cover of the book. It almost looks painted, right? Yeah. Yeah, It looks like watercolors. One of uh, Mignola's watercolors, maybe. Yeah, and it's like Baltimore. You, you notice also his face is not uh, very detailed on the cover. Yeah. We get a bunch of Mignola skulls. So then I like the the praise for Baltimore on the back. You have a bunch of authors like uh, Peter Straub is here, Joe Hill, Michael Moorcock. Man, I love the Ulrich saga. <laughs> yeah, I know the Ulrich um, saga is good. I actually have good. a different cover because I have this. Um, it's like a special edition or it's like a director's cut. I don't know what this is called, but it's got a different cover. And I guess the only thing that's different about it, it has a couple pages at the end where there's like a sketchbook section. Oh, sweet. Um, at the end I'll of have it. To Google so that. I'll have to post some 
uh, pictures of this. I forgot what it's called. It doesn't say anything different on the cover. I also have, um, when it was first announced, there was like a little mini book and it was just the first chapter. Hmm. Um, and it was like a floppy. It was like um, like those oversized comics, like kind of like the yeah. DC Black. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had a glossy cover and it's signed by Mignola and Christopher Golden. Oh, that's no awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm having that too. So I'll post a picture of that as well. Dang, that's sweet, John. Yeah, then we had um, two acknowledgments at the beginning of the book. Or dedications, sorry. They were dedications. But I thought Mike Mignola's was interesting because he just, he said his wife and then a, and a bunch of um, authors, which was cool. Right, which yeah. Which is probably where he Brent got inspiration. Stoker, yeah, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley and Herman Melville. Herman Melville and Christian Anderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was fun. And it's Christopher Golden does a bunch of his family. Yeah. I think. And then they did the acknowledgement for Anne Grohl, who I guess was the editor for the book. They credit her a lot. Oh, okay. Special. Very and then, nice. And then uh, Gilmo del Toro gets a thanks as well. I thought that was interesting. He knows why. He knows why. <laughs> he knows yes, why. I, well, I want to come back to that. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Wes, because I want to come back to that, not in this episode, in a later episode, but I think I know. I think okay. I know the, the 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 part that he might have contributed to this book. But anyway, I think he... He had an idea for the book or okay. something that he gave them inspiration for. And I'll, when we get to it, yeah. Well, we get to prelude uh, Requiem. We get uh, two illustrations of soldiers. You guys see those illustrations, right? You have those? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we get a little quote at the beginning here. I was going to read them. Makes sense to read them, right? There were once five and 20 tin soldiers, all brothers, for they were the offspring of the same old tin spoon. The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah, and we've talked about that with the comic, how, um, you know, there are a lot of references to Hans Christian Andersen's uh, The Tin Soldier and all that stuff. And yeah. there's like a ballet and all that kind of stuff. So very cool. I love those little quotes in the beginning. Yeah, I still haven't even read that. I should go and read. <laughs> For the sake that we're doing this series, I should go read that Steadfast Tin Soldier. Uh, I've never read it. <laughs> I bet you it's like Christmassy. Should do it. <laughs> like nutcracker. That's a good point. <laughs> All right. So um, it, it was interesting. We talked about this earlier. Um, I think before we started recording, but there's like no dates or locations in the in the book. I mean, there's references. I guess there is locations, but right. like I couldn't find a date, yeah. so I went back. So like according to the comic book and and Wikipedia, November 1914 is where this is taking place. Uh, we open with Captain Henry Baltimore leading a night attack across the no man's land of a battlefield. Well, it opens with uh, on a cold autumn night under a black sky, leached of starlight and absent the moon. Captain Henry Baltimore clutches his rifle and stares across the dark abyss of the battlefield. He knows in his heart that these are the torture fields of hell and damnation awaits mere steps ahead. On one knee, he pauses, listening but the only sound that comes from the chill autumn wind that carries with the stink of the of the death and decay. So like right away we're thrown into sort of the battlefield of what's yeah. going on, which is pretty crazy. It's like what's going on inside Baltimore's head, but it's not Baltimore. Right. 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 Yeah. Is the narr- yeah. Interesting narration. No. Well, the next thing that happens is they see this big mound and you know, they don't know if it's like a giant hill or if it's a hill of bodies, you know what I mean? Like the, the imagery is really kind of gruesome right from the beginning. Yeah, Baltimore signals his his platoon to go head towards this mound, and it goes to his head like is it could be dirt or it could be humans, and then they're relieved that it's dirt just because the dirt 
is harder for bullets to pass through as opposed right, to a dead yeah, body. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Like, dang. But they're there to fight the Hessians. What was it? Their commander determined that someone must travel at night since it was so dark and that the mission had gone to Captain Baltimore and the Hessians were camped on the other side in the thick of the woods uh, on the other side of the battlefield. The Hessians, we've talked about this before, but were the Imperial German army. No man's land was a term most frequently used for the start of the war to describe the areas between the trench lines and the uh, Ardennes forest or forest of Ardennes is a region of extensive forest extending through Germany and France and Belgium and Luxembourg. Okay. So that's an actual location. Yeah. I forget sometimes that this is like, this is historical fiction. I mean, but it is, it does take place in history. So there, I love that, that, you know, these are real locations and they're putting it like in the, Right, right smack in the middle of World War One. Right, but yeah. like a specific mm-hmm. spot too. Like you could go like, oh, that's when this happened. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I really enjoy stuff like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and seeing how they move and how the time sort of passes and stuff like that. Yeah. And then immediately we get, I mean, this, this book is loaded with Mignola illustrations, which is awesome. All the darks, dark ink black. But we get like soldier silhouettes and the barbed wire and stuff like that, which is sweet. Right, right. Yeah. We hear Baltimore yearns for home or is sort of like talking about how he yearns for home, thinking that the war couldn't be further from the comforts of it. And um, it's sort of stated that his innocence or his ability to find comfort at home is lost forever. Uh, who he was is is no longer who he is now. I, I love this part where he talks about... Um... The tin soldiers, right? So there's, yeah. a, so there's all these parallels. Um, as a boy, he had kept to his room on rainy days and played with his tin soldiers and had cast them as enemies and caused them to kill one another on the battlefield of his blanket. But tin soldiers do not bleed. They go back in the box and live to fight another day. Soldiers of flesh and blood also end up in a box, but theirs is of heavy pine. Baltimore has seen far too many soldiers bleed and go into that wooden box in pieces. So there's all yeah, these parallels of like, the the tin soldiers and then yeah the other and it's like i don't know god the way that they go back and forth between the two there's some really choice pieces of writing by christopher golden and mignola on this i was gonna say like it really like i don't know infers something like it really like it's sort of suggestive yeah to a lot of things like who baltimore is or you know as a tin soldier or who's the boy that plays with the tin soldiers or all that stuff it's sort of like really interesting Right, right. Well, I guess we'll come back to it later, but I think Childress does say that they both like grew up wealthy, you know what I mean? Or they grew yeah. up like rich little boys or whatever. So I mean, well, he is a lord. He's a lord, yeah. So yeah. I guess he would have like a little box of soldiers. Well, I mean, it's also interesting because like kids, like, you know, back then played war and like even kids today, like you remember playing with like G.I. Joe's and shit yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, and now you're actually in war and you realize just how different you know yeah. it really is it's like the war isn't something to be glorified it's just it's horrible thing that happens right right you know? yeah so then we we return to the battlefield after hearing a little bit about you know him as a kid and having so, tin soldiers back at home um baltimore raises his hand to signal his men first to the left and then to the right in two lines they hurry forward flanking his position on both sides their motion is barely a whisper to disturb the darkness yet to him they seem far too loud as they come nearer, they can hear the soft tread of boots upon hard earth and the chest deep grunts of grim men tired of killing. They basically come up to the barbed wire at this point, right? right. They walk up to the barbed wire and hearing the sounds of the men tired of killing is like almost like they're they're giving up. 
Nearest to Baltimore is Sergeant Tomlin. Baltimore sees the urgency in Tomlin's face. He's just as nervous. Baltimore is stricken with fear as they're going to split off, right? They're going to split off in this moment. Right. Baltimore hesitates and they talk about it being the worst place imaginable for such a person to pause. Like he's internalizing this stuff while he's yeah. on the battlefield, which is nuts. They work their way across the field, stumbling over the dead. My God, he whispers to the night. Well, like uh, he says, like, he nearly stumbles over a dead soldier. His body's burnt so badly that it's impossible to tell whether he had been friend or foe. The dead man's face has run like melted wax. Oh, God. That's yeah, fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> All I can imagine is that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the dude's face yeah. starts melting. <laughs> right, right. There was like a bunch of that in the 90s, right? It was like yeah. constantly, yeah. or even in the late 80s or like 80s. Where like well, Raiders was in 81? Okay, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> right? Was, yeah, in the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of that stuff, man. Yeah. But anyway, so in a crouch, Baltimore steals alongside the ruined ground, his men falling in around around him. He lifts a hand and glances around for Norwich, which is the corporal with the wire cutters, and, and tells him to come over, wire cutters sticking out the back. Norwich gets gets going on the barbed wire fence, and while he's doing it, he cuts his face on the barbed wire and needs to be pulled back. Baltimore signals for a private to continue the efforts that Norwich has started. That scene I thought was really great, like because it snaps back and, and hits him and then he pushes his hand to it and he has to like be quiet. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I mean? He can't make any sounds. So there's like this whole like, suspense, I don't know, like, like constantly suspense is being like, right. Yeah. Right. And then like the medic, like, I don't know, there's this whole part where the medic like puts this stuff on there and then it's like, there's nothing more that could be done. Yeah. Like they can't see shit. They can't do anything. And it's like, well, that's it. You know what I mean? That's as good as that's going to get. Well, and then also you're talking about like, you know, he gets that that thing rips his face off and like, you know, he has to keep quiet. Yeah. Uh, just the other day I was at work and I was trying to turn, I turned around and I just didn't see what I was going on. I walked right into the copy machine and kicked my shin. Ooh. It was loud. It, it rang over the store and I just turned around and I didn't scream fuck like right. I wanted to. <laughs> customers are there and everything. Right. Yeah. You can't really yeah. make a whole scene like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, you just have that like when you when you get that sudden jerk pain, you have yeah. that urge to just want to scream out. Anyway, it was very well done. Like it's it seems very painful and a very like extreme moment when it goes through it in the book. And it sort of paints the picture that like they really this is like really serious. Yeah. Like they yeah. have to be really conscious of what they're doing. But the private that they pull forward to take Norwich's job uh finishes and the soldiers proceed through with Private McIntosh at at point, Baltimore recognizes Macintosh from his giant brute silhouette. <laughs> yeah, that's how they describe it. Once through the wire, the soldiers spread out. Less than 10 feet ahead of them lies the trench that gaped like a wound slashed in the world is the, is the line, which is a pretty sweet line. The blackness of the pit makes the night seem bright in comparison. And we know there's no stars, like it's overcast, so there's no stars, right, no moon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I love get, all this writing. It's really great. Yeah, it's good. And then we get the cool barbed wire illustrations that I love. Oh, yeah. Those are awesome. Like, I would just love to have one of those. I wonder, like, who has this? Who has just this little barbed wire thing? Like, I want it. I even <laughs> sometimes think about, like, what was thrown just thrown out that I would cherish and love. For <laughs> and real, like... right? Exactly, right? Oh, my God. 
I love this yeah. one illustration as they're all like the one where they're all standing on the hill. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Really good. Baltimore raises his hand to signal the advance. In quick succession, three soft pops puncture the night, followed by a strange whistling that ends when a trio of flares explode into brightness above the battlefield, casting the entirety of the scene in a garish white light, such that every corpse and trench and divot in the earth stands out in perfect detail. The platoon is strung along the line of earth between barbed wire and trench, completely exposed. Dread and fear turn to rigid ice in his veins, and Baltimore freezes. Legs locked in place like one of his cherished tin soldiers, feet welded to its base. He has failed his country and the men who follow him. His gaze follows the flares as they rise to the peak of their arcs and seem to hang for a moment like angels on high. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah. And you it, can just see and feel that. I know, and it's so like you, you just like you were saying, Aubrey, you get that feeling like, oh, they're fucked now. Like they're yeah. just yeah, completely, oh it, it is an oh shit moment. And like, so I went back and I guess we'll talk about the comic a little bit, but I went back to like, look at it. Whoops. Um, and in the comic, like you barely get a sense of that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like you barely get a sense of, I tried to look for Norwich too. I was like, is there a guy with a gash on his cheek? But I didn't see one. Um, I mean, I feel like I wonder if Mike Mignola didn't want to tell this story again. You know what I mean? Right, just just right. hint at it to encourage people to go pick this story. Yeah. Up, you know? But you see the flares come mm-hmm. up and then pretty good though, man. It all happens so quickly in the comic. Yeah, super quick. Yeah. And so uh, there's this all, uh, you know, a tin soldier cannot move. Like they're, you know, frozen in that moment. Ah, it's really good. So then we get like a little, like, I think this is a foreshadowing scene with the tin soldiers in the bed. We go back to like all this italicized writing in the book that's telling like Henry and his soldiers and like what happens with Henry's soldiers. So um, waiting for the child Henry to come back, there's two platoons of soldiers on his bed, right? About to fight each other. or They're like laid out. Right, right. And then while the two platoons are waiting, there's like a laughter, you know. And one of the soldiers or the the soldiers that I think like really becomes Baltimore right at the end of these of this story, like he's just the character in the bed that Henry is playing with, but then he becomes Baltimore like later. Right. Like the soldiers waiting and there's something more menacing out there than the soldiers fighting each other. Um there's like a jack in the box and then we get an illustration of Goblin Jack. It's like a thud 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 and the soldier knows that like he's fighting his comrades on the other side but there's something more he can he can hear the the, he can hear that the jack-in-the-box wants to come out and he's afraid of it popping out and what it's going to do when it and it like it paint i don't know it just makes it very menacing yeah um and then we abruptly return to the scene of battle i don't know if it's abruptly but we return to the scene of battle as gunfire tears into the silhouettes of Baltimore's men. Cries of pain and death rise all around him. The men are driven into the barbed wire and thrash there. Oh, that that part is like messed up. It says that like with each thrash, they cut themselves more. What does it say? Something like that. I was just like, fuck, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know. Bleeding, dying. I know. It's bad. Oh my God, it's gruesome. Yep. And then, it, and then it reads to the right, the skinny private stands straight, though at attention, the top of his skull missing and a hole where his nose should be, an entry wound, already dead. He still clutches his rifle and marches three steps forward before tumbling down into the trench with the Hessians who have murdered him. The tin soldier cannot move. And then it goes into the italysis there. Yeah. Like, Baltimore's Man. just standing there. 
That, that gives me like imagery of those of those ten soldiers too. The way that they describe yeah. that guy with his head missing and all that kind of stuff. It's like, man, mm-hmm. good stuff. Like I could see, I could see cinematically how you could switch from one to the other in this really like fucked up moment or whatever. You know. Yep. And then Baltimore shot. He gets. He feels blood go down his leg. I don't think he he doesn't really feel the wound, right? Right. Um, no. And he stumbles down to the ground. He feels the warm blood trickle down his leg. And he remains clutching, clutching his gun in his hand. Fresh barrage of, of gunfire comes from the trench. And as he spins falling, he sees the face of the Hessian soldiers, dark with dirt and camouflage, loading their rifles and feeding ammunition into their heavy machine guns. Baltimore falls. And it's just like plow everybody down. Yeah. So then, so then we get into that other, other italicized story, like you said before. But it talks about the soldiers still dreading Jack in the box, the Jack in the box. Um, right yes yeah even though it's quiet now like things have quiet it's been quiet for a few hours and they like hear henry like playing out in the hallway or whatever or outside and there's like the windows open there's noise coming inside and light coming inside from outside all the soldiers are away in their box now and like being in their box their comrades even though they were at war with each other earlier and it's nice the soldier tells us it's a nice feeling right it's safe even pleasant in the box yes yeah and then it starts to rain in the box and the narrator goes from the tin soldier to baltimore like he i think in that moment he's transformed like you realize oh it's baltimore oh but i like this part where it said um it was talking about that jack it said uh he knows that it's up on the shelf in the box the jack stirs still amused and waiting for its chance to emerge what will it do then the tin soldier does not know but he dreads the moment he will hear the bright jarring calliope of its handle being cranked for then he will know that jack is about to be freed that's like i've never been so scared for a jack in the box to right? pop out of the thing <laughs> you know what i mean i'm like oh my god this is great yeah that was a good part anyway i really liked that and dreaded music but yeah it transitions it transitions back to Baltimore, and now he's being woken up by the rain coming down on them. Yeah, yeah. Baltimore wakes to the cold rain, cold tears trickling across his face. Other scents fill his nostrils and the pain in his leg he feels. He finds it difficult to breathe and doesn't know why. He is disoriented but realizes that the darkness is not quite so completely as it had been. Dark shapes lie heavily upon him. Cold, damp, rough material touches his face. He lays upon stones and jutting limbs of the men. This is also like when they talk about him laying on top of the limbs, the tin soldier also describes like a similar situation, but he's comforted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's on top and entangled with his other tin soldiers, but right. Yeah. He's also comfortable there. And then Baltimore's in a very different, uncomfortable place. And he's on top of the men that followed him to their death. He shifts his weight and can see that the weight on his chest has a face and in the gloom of the stormy night, he can see the dead stare of, of Corporal Norwich and the gash on the dead man's cheek. He fights the urge to call for help, remembering he was just in battle and that the Hessians could be there and cut down anyone who might right. come to him. Images of his men being slaughtered flicker through his mind. He has been frozen, unable to help. Yeah, wild stuff. We get a nice skull. Get a Mignola skull. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a bunch of them. Good old Mignola skulls. Then we continue on. Baltimore feels cold and sleepily numbness come over him. He thinks death will not be far off, yet he does not want to die in the trench. He wonders if he will live long enough to see the sun rise and hopes he will. Like, it's an interesting, you know, hope. He just want to see the sun. Right. I mean, it really like, you're like, man, dude, this dude's done. Yeah. He goes in and out of consciousness for a while. And through the pain, Baltimore is able to free himself from the pile of corpses 
he's able to prop himself up and get his eyes on the eastern horizon so he can wait for the sun to come up, waiting to die as well. Only he notices things in the sky. He struggles to keep his eyes open as he tries to understand what he is seeing, wondering if they are mere hallucinations, but they remain, and they move, they fly. I love that, yeah. They talk about the kites, right? And so they would talk about, that's what they called them in the comic too, the big bats, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. kites, they're kites, like the one he had as a boy, but with shorter tails. And the pictures are awesome yeah. too in this. You know, you see him in the distance, and then on the next page, you see him super close, and they're giant bats. Pretty sweet. Really good. Oh, yeah. Eventually, the kites start circling and coming closer, and he sees them come closer and then land, right? They all land on the dead, and he sees them start eating the dead. Oh, yeah, no. So it, uh, here's, like, the good part. As Baltimore blinks again, forcing himself to remain conscious, he sees the creature dart its snout forward and tear a chunk of flesh from the throat of a private that all the men had called Topper. Baltimore had never known his real name. The creature yanks back and a strip of skin comes away with the gobbit of bloody meat. It cocks its head and chokes down its prize. Yeah, my God. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, fuck, man. And like the animal behavior too, like the way mm-hmm. they describe, like that's how animals eat is they like, you yes, know what yeah. I mean? They use gravity or whatever. They use like um, momentum to get the food to come back or it's just like ah yeah and even in this whole thing they're like they talk about the bats sort of being in a trance like gray eyes oh right okay yeah but i remember them talking about it through this story well they say um so when he first sees the bat it says it tilts its head and stares at him with a dreadful curiosity in its crimson eyes okay it has crimson eyes but then but but then we want to but I want to come back to that because then something changes in a little bit. I also like this part where you know he's seen the bat come towards him and he wishes that he had the gun and it says his fingers flex as if with a mind of their own wishing for the rifle. He could lay it across his chest to sight it, can practically feel himself pulling the trigger, the kick of the weapon as it fires, but he has no rifle. I don't know, it just creates this very tense moment as this like creature is coming towards him so i loads up with guns later in his life or his oh yeah right (laughs) (laughs) you're absolutely right oh my god this totally sets the foreshadowing for that very good so but yeah the the bat eventually notices him and starts to to creep towards him right it touches him baltimore can hear the sound of flesh being torn from the corpses and the trench in the ground around him can hear the rain hitting the ground spattering their wings but he can only stare into their poisonous eyes lit by some unholy light. But he searches for a right. weapon. I mean, we know this scene. We've seen this scene. But he searches for a weapon and gets his hands on a bayonet from the end of a, right. a rifle. Yeah. He thrusts out his left hand and grips its throat. Would have plunged the bayonet into its chest had it not lunged at that very moment. Its jaws come at him, eyes on his throat. And he slashes the blade upward, slicing it from horrid mouth to snout to brow. The creature falls away from him, flapping and writhing on the ground, screaming as no animal could scream. Then it rises, shaking in fury, blood streaming from the cut on its face. Its eyes no longer glow crimson. They are dull, soulless things, gray and flat as stones. Yeah, this is weird because I feel like that's when he would have woken him up, right? Yet he can feel the hatred in the thing, and it sears him. The hunger has gone from the devil. Only the fury remains, and the glitter of its sleep intelligence now awakened. Yes. So I feel like when they were had the crimson eyes, they're all under like the spell or whatever. They're just mindless things. They're like in their berserkery. Right. Or whatever. But then once he like cuts him, his eyes turn gray. So 
like if we know from reading the comic that this is Hagus, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so in the comic, Hagus says, like, you woke me in this moment. You've kind of he snapped him out of it at that. So I think that's what's happening there. But again, like, ah, it's just great writing that, you know, and, and it's it's awesome that they would think about this. Like all that stuff from the comic totally lines up with what's in the I, I don't know. I just love that. I just love that they're so well uh Yeah. They they coincide so well together. I know, I like how they match up. The story takes such a left turn, and it does in the comic too, but just going from a war scene to all of a sudden like, what, where, where are we? What is going, why is this happening? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the part that always got me when I first read this was where he talks about how he breathes into the wound. So um, the creature, uh, the bat or whatever, it, now that it's awakened first, uh, it breathes into the open wound above his knee. Mm-hmm. And so I was always interested in what that would look like. So in the comic, you do get to see that. Yeah. So I thought that that was pretty cool. And then it says, uh, on the next page, the creature throws back its wings and howls at the storm clouds as though appealing to some ancient primal god. The ground shifts beneath Baltimore. He feels it tremble as he stares at the carrion eater. The creature turns to hiss at him, blood spilling from the gash in its face, soaking into the thirsty earth along with the rain. The other creatures crawl along the ruin of the battlefield converging on Baltimore. So that's the part, right? So first he breathes into the leg and then he calls all the other, all the other ones to... Yeah. They all come towards Baltimore, but then they start... They take flight above him. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a part where he describes before the, oh no, maybe I did, maybe I did read it, but he talks about the sky being like a blue or right before the sun starts to come up. Oh, right. So we know the sun's coming up around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And then he passes out. Baltimore passes out. That's it. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And it describes the breath that he breathes into him being like a mist, like a, like a wet moist gross mist right right yeah, yeah. So. well i remember when we were uh discussing that first comic you were talking about that scene and how you remember from the book and you were wondering i was just like and so getting to this part in the book i was just like oh yeah i kind of understand what john's talking about it now. seems so weird right it yeah. breathes into him the way that it describes it but like in the book it's it's pretty great yeah ben stenbeck and dave stewart do a really great job of it's fun to like after you read it and then you can like I bookmarked it. I love seeing the at the adaptation in the comic form. Yeah, I read the comic book first. So I did the flip of what you did. Oh, OK. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So the next chapter, we get those same uh, the same 10 soldiers right at the beginning of this mm-hmm. one, too. Yeah. And we get another steadfast 10 soldier quote from uh, Hans Christian Anderson. The first thing they heard in their new world when the lid was taken off the box was a little boy clapping his hands and crying soldier soldiers, the steadfast tin soldier by Hans Christian Anderson arrival. Kairi Kairi. I don't know how to say it. Kairi. Kairi. Something like that. That's the way that that's the way that the guy on the audiobook says it. So we get a Demetrius Atros, which, and that, that we, I don't say right either, but in the book, he's, I mean, in the audiobook he says it a little different. Atros. I don't know how uh, though. I can't say yeah. it. He says like, Atros. Atros. Yeah. I'll have to listen to it again and Something try and like take that. notes like to that. try and yeah. say it, say it right again. But I love the illustration of Asheros. Yeah. I was calling Demetrius. Yeah. Demetrius. Demetrius. There you go. Yeah. I have him through my notes as Asheros everywhere, but Demetrius, <laughs> but I mean, you can see the scars on his face, how he looks old. He's weathered, you know, after, you know, cause like, you know, I didn't read this first. So, you know, these are like the characters we meet 
at the end of the omnibus and all that. And so yeah. it's interesting to kind of yeah. get from this kind of uh, point of view. Well, it's right. We get a little bit more on this guy too, because we don't see all this where he first gets there. This is kind of like his journey in, but very cool. This yeah. story, this story complements the other story reading through Like it's, it fills a lot of the holes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't really do a retelling. Yeah. I, I, I like, and I guess since this was first, I mean, I guess the comics aren't doing a retelling. They're just filling in some other things. It's just, but I like that because I mean, why do the same thing twice? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. But yeah. So we open with Atros, Demetrius. The last time we saw him was the Chapel of Bones in episode 38. Like you said, Aubrey, back in July. Um, oh, thank you. Good, good note there. <laughs> yeah. No problem. He's also a sea captain. Um, he's the one that brought Baltimore home and was there for his wife's funeral, I think, right? He came back for the wife's funeral. Yeah, no, he was. You're right. Yes, he is in the yeah. Oh my god, yeah. So, I didn't even look back at that. So he but it's he like, left looked, and came back, I think, right? Like I don't think he stayed there. Like I think he became friends with Baltimore and then probably got wind that Baltimore's family and wife was killed, so came back to be at his wife's funeral. Right. That's what I think. That's my impression. Like, I don't think he hung out there for months. Like, I think he went back to probably back to, um, you know, wherever the war was and started bringing people back. He's Just in kept one going back panel. He's in, okay. In the, oh, he's in two panels in uh, the first story, the plague ships. There's a flashback and he's in these two panels. You see him right here next to Baltimore. And then you see the back of him. Yeah. Bringing him to his house. But then that's it. Oh, no, wait. He's in a third panel. He's walking away as they're hugging or whatever. But then he takes off. So, yeah, he's actually in the plague ships in the flashback where they show Baltimore get back. Yeah, it's awesome. That is so cool. Yeah, super cool. Anyway, great job, Yeah, that Wes. is pretty cool. I love that. Awesome. So then the date of the story for this story, and that, again, it's not in the book, which I thought was so interesting. There's no dates in this at all. But it's November 30th, 1919, and they're in London, right? I think they're in London. Wait. You say November 30th? November 30th, yeah, 1919. Today is November 30th. That's today. Oh, that's wild. <laughs> wow. What year was it? 1919. 1919, so that's 103 years ago. <laughs> cool. That's actually Very funny cool. that we're awesome. recording on November 30th. That's so funny. That's awesome. That's awesome. So it talks about how Demetrius had to leave his big boat, or he he's narrating. He, he had to leave his big boat and walk. He's used to being on his boat and walk the canal to a destination. We, the listeners or, and readers, know to be the pub, the ugly muse, although it's not mentioned in this story, I don't think. Yeah, they don't say the ugly muse at all, but I wonder, I that must have been added after, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, his trek along the canal starts like off beautiful with tall, healthy crops and beautiful scents and all this color and stuff like that, but slowly turns into rubble, brush and broken glass. And we see that like, cause this, I feel like Demetrius's story, um, mirrors when we read in the comic book, when Baltimore shows up and walks the same canal and it starts off beautiful and then slowly gets gray and gross. Uh, right yeah. so that's like the passing stranger all that kind of stuff right yeah yeah exactly so and there's parts that come up that i'm like i, th I wonder if baltimore like passed the same guys because there's like right yeah you know, i'll you know we'll get there and i'll i'll try and remember to mention it but on the opposite bank he sees dirty faced men dressed in tattered clothing looking hungry living in rotted fishing boats 
that had been flipped over. Just like what was that? Um, doctor, the doctor one. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. you're right. Doctor Leskovar's remedy. That's where the people oh, were, right? right. And he okay. was like testing on the people, and the people moved out of the town. And they all right. lived in flipped over boats. Yes, you're right. You're right. I'm thinking of something else. I'm thinking of something else because I think they did hide in a boat or in a submarine in one of the. Yeah, they hid in something. I'm thinking of something else. Anyway, but yeah, yes, it's there. You're it's absolutely a theme. right. It's definitely Lost a theme. <laughs> Ashros gives one of the guys a hard look, like just to let him know he's not prey, and that he's armed and capable in a fight. The breath of his shoulders is what the book says. The breath of his shoulders and the scars on his face were clue enough. Very good. So, yeah. He's a tough guy. Don't fuck with him. Yeah, don't fuck with that guy. And then we get a sweet little town illustration by Mignola. It's great. Sorry, I'm going to mention all of the Mignola illustrations, but I like this one. <laughs> I should just get another one of these books and cut them. <laughs> no, I can actually just photocopy it. Right. Photocopy <laughs> well, it. you'd have to get two because, you know, there's some on the facing pages so uh, <laughs> oh i gotta get three yeah one for reading one for cutting and one for cutting the other sides of the pages exactly <laughs> one for cutting the right side one for cutting the left side so then we go in like we sort of get internal with ashros besides he thought no one would ever enter the city unarmed anybody coming to the city is going to be coming in armed ashros attention is brought back to the brown waters of the canal okay yeah so when you read when you say the brown waters canal it goes on to say a stink rose from it far worse than simple sewage death and rot shit and rust the stench carried them all and yet something else lingered under that smell a natural noxious odor like the gas from the boggy marsh in crosley a place he hoped to never visit again <laughs> yeah then i was like crosley we're we're like was that mentioned in one of his other stories i was trying to remember crosley like is that what because they start talking about their like how they knew baltimore and why they believe his story right, because they yeah. had gone through similar experiences so I don't know. I just was like mental note crossly. Right. Yeah. I don't think that that's been mentioned before. I'll check my notes, but I, I, I don't know. I don't think that's come up. Maybe a future story. So as he approaches the city, he sees the city like monolith, gray and black buildings huddled together with their backs turned, conspiring against him. It's unsettling to Ashros. What a great description. I love that. How he like, the, he just sees the city as this one huge giant thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like how he describes it as the, the city's back is turned to him. As he follows the path to the city, he sees a woman dump a bucket of something he'd prefer stay ignorant of. The path has a, like, <laughs> his path that he's going into the city has a dark tunnel coming up, going underneath a bridge, and rats scurry out of the darkness into a small patch of grass. He notices strange shapes jutting out of. So, like, I think this part is actually in the comic book. But oh, it's, okay. not, it's not the- Demetrius walking through. It's Baltimore walking through this part. So this part coming up, I, I think Baltimore walks. From a passing stranger? Is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about Chapel of Bones. Oh, okay. Right. When Baltimore is coming to go meet them at the bar, I think Baltimore walks through the same canal and walks past the same incident that we're going to like hear about. So like Asheros walks closer to this patch of grass and he, he notices that the lumps coming out of the grass is a dead body that had been thrown into that patch, right? They're human legs. Yeah. He discovers human legs. So when like Baltimore walks past that point and he also interacts with some young kids, um, there's a dead guy there on the ground. So I, I was just like, man, maybe that's the same dead guy. Oh. And maybe those kids that Baltimore interacts with are the same kids. So they get they get what's coming to them later, you know, by Baltimore later that night. Oh, yeah. All right, so I grabbed the omnibus. And if you go to Chapel of Bones, chapter one, this is when like Baltimore uh-huh. gets off the train and he's walking through. 
it's page 473 and there's the he's like walking to the canal and there's the tunnel there's people hanging out under a boat and then these guys stumble out and there's two kids behind a zombie guy oh you're right and i think there's okay. i think at least that front kid the blonde kid is maybe the bigger boy you know right here we don't know what, huh but i i like i don't know i just was thinking maybe that guy down there is the same guy that was thrown off the bridge cool catch i love that what a what a minor little detail there yeah i was thinking maybe let's put a dead body there or whatever <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know there's like this one there's this one really gruesome part god i can't find it now where it's like talking about the rats eating the thing or whatever oh yeah like pulling are we there yet pulling on that yeah that part happens when when he walks up closer to the human legs but yeah he gets closer to the tunnel and a shout comes out from the tunnel damn damn nick not so fast give me a chance yeah. <laughs> i don't know why i made him from the south <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's he's definitely british a boy emerged from the shadows beneath the arch. He wore threadbare clothes, torn and stained, and his hair was a shock of wild black. They want to go to the dead body and strip it of anything valuable like scavengers. Right, yeah. Um, Ashros realizes that the body had been dumped over and maybe it had just died. Or the younger boys maybe killed him and dumped him over the bridge and then got down there to you know, take whatever whatever was of use. The younger of the boys thought to be seven or eight, which is crazy. Kept calling to his partner, Nick, the older boy, the older, bigger boy, who finally looks up from the course to see Atros. The bigger boy grins as he sees Atros and steps away from the corpse. And the boy snarls and hisses. And the bigger one draws a knife from his pocket. So it's almost like, you remember that story where the boy had like a, he was feeding people to a giant spider. Yeah. But also a passing stranger. That's the one, that's the one that I was thinking of when I was reading. This. Yeah. That yeah. it reminds me that part reminded me of that. Like there's something inside the bigger boy, maybe, or the boys are just puppets right now. Cause then when like, right. The page that I was says, talking about has, it looks like a human in the background, but then a zombie was clearly in charge. Right. Right. It says, as he drew nearer, he saw the boy's eyes were lifeless, lightless black, mm -hmm. their features thin and stretched into a natural sneer. In appearance, they were uncannily like the rats they had pursued from the shadows. Beneath the brim of his dark hat, Ashros narrowed his gaze and glared at them, unblinking. His life had been one of violence and scars, some of which they would have seen when they glanced at his hands. And he had no fear of vermin, whether they walked on four legs or two. Um, Ashros continues on through the tunnel, keeping aware that where the boys went. We hear more about the looming city, sort of talks more about the looming city and his uneasiness as he takes one last look at the sun before entering the tunnel. Yeah, I love this description where it talks about him going into the bowels of the city and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We learned that it's almost noon and he is late for wherever he's supposed to be. He was supposed to be there by noon. He was instructed in a letter that he received 19 days earlier. We get on page 30 and 31 and the book is more awesome illustrations, but it shows like little silhouette heading towards that tunnel. And the tunnel in this looks the same as the tunnel in the comic. Oh, okay. So a looming shadow drops on Asheros. We learn to be a barge filled with gray corpses as he's walking through. The figure on top of the pile of dead men turned and glanced back at him. In the shadows, the bargemen seemed hooded, dark and silent as the ferryman on the sticks. His eyes gleamed even as the barge slid into deeper shadows and then into darkness. Yeah, I love that. And so the, he talks about that's a giant thing of bodies, right? Yeah, it's just a pile of bodies in a barge. So as he steps into the battle of the city, we're told about a time when he when the city was vivid with color and conversation the market was filled with vendors 
aromas and food. Ashros, when he had been here, had a taste of pineapple for the first time in the city and remembers that. He is reminded of the butcher market, music, newsies, screaming out for get your, get your papers and automobiles. The city had hope, life, and color, the book says. All gone now, eradicated. The city had become heavy with despair and black banners, broken windows, faded signs. No, I like this part where it says, uh, when he came to the sunlit market square, he could almost hear the echo of its past joy, could almost smell the ghost of the wonderful scents that had drifted on the air. But now it smelled of piss and sewage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fuck, man. So we get more talk about how the city was and how the city had turned derelict and the people living there and that the best thing for the city was to put it to torch and burn it down. And he's like, and then sow the earth with salt so nothing can grow back. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> that has ruined the whole thing. Asheros comes to an end. The door seemed a mercy to not have to spend another moment in the streets of the dead city. He had been to the inn before the war. Now only ghosts of imagination remained. And he says, uh, he stepped through the door in the inn only to find it no improvement at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it talks about this inn as like a place where poets were. It says, poets and actors, writers and artists had gathered here to argue and laugh and dance, to taste absinthe and ale and blur the edges of reality, to imagine worlds and possibility. Um, but then it goes on to say, Now it was all dust and grime. And fit right. and the place had stank of faded glory. We get um some nice uh illustrations too. I love this. Oh, these we are so good. get to see the inside of it. Yep. Now it, it existed as a suck hole, a drain of failed humanity. <laughs> I love suck hole. <laughs> some of this I'm like, geez. Yeah, suck hole is a great word. I'm like, gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. Yeah, oh, we're back at this suck hole again. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, there is this part where, uh, I thought this was interesting, he says, As he entered, he heard the words in the air, saw them stealing surreptitious glances at him, even as they pointed to a certain chair where a great poet had drunk himself to death, a certain fireplace where a novelist had set his manuscript ablaze and wept over the ashes. They talked about this in the comic, right? Yeah, in the comic. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's I was what it was like, like a oh lot of the super artsy people for whatever reason, the red King can like tap into them. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So that's what's happening there. But again, like these little references and stuff like that. I mean, it's so, I, I, I love the parallels and how they, the comics reference these kinds of things. I mean, it's Mignola world building. He knows he yeah, gets that thing. Yeah. Like he, he was like, Nope, that's how it is. I, I don't know how he is acting. I shouldn't say that's how he is, but like, I just imagine like he's got it all figured out or it's in there his world is inside of his so you're saying that wasn't an accurate impression of Mignola is what you're talking about <laughs> correct that's what I'm telling you <laughs> so it goes on to uh, say the place had become yeah we talked about this Astros did not have to wonder what happened here with the plague and the war now a part of the world the men and women who gathered there lacked the courage to even take their own lives. They only lingered there haunting the place. Mentioned that one too. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. He talks about people at the bar as gray pantomime people and how Asheros mm -hmm. represented an unwelcome species whom were not victims of the plague and wondered how long it would take in a place like this before he became the same as them. Yeah. The two men he had come to meet 
he knew right away because they had the same color in their cheeks. He walks up to them. So this this we know. I mean, this is all familiar territory we're getting into here. Astro stroked his thick mustache and the stubble upon his chin. Far too many days from seeing a razor and paused to study the two men for a moment. One was quite handsome, dressed in a gentleman's suit. A golden chain disappeared into a small pocket in his vest. His watch, no doubt. But its conspicuousness made him either bold or stupid. His sophistication and noble bearing were marred by a wide swath of scar tissue visible upon the right side of his neck and jaw and the diminished right ear whose lobe must have been seared away by the same fire his companion cut a very different figure small and slender with hair as red as a fox pelt the red-haired man had grim features ordinary save for their harshness but he was far from ugly Astros had not looked at himself in a mirror in some years but he knew well the scarred terrain of his own homely face the red-haired man raised his right hand in a small salute of welcome the ring and fourth fingers were missing. Ruxlack slung over his shoulder. Ashro strode to the table. The eyes of the other patrons were upon them, but they had not even the spirit to maintain interest in newcomers, and already many of them had gone back to the drone of their conversation and dull taste of weak whiskey. Yeah. I always got to remember, too, like I have a lot of history with these guys because we, we get more from them in book two, in volume two. Oh, Okay. Yeah, okay. That's awesome. These guys are awesome. I'm excited. Yeah. But yeah, a- Ashros basically asked the men um, if they were the ones Lord Baltimore said to expect, and they all go through introductions. Uh, Thomas Childress Jr. introduces himself. Right, Childress is the one with the with the burnt face. See, okay, in the audiobook he says Childress, and that's how I read it when I when we were reading the comic. Oh, Childress, okay. it Childress. is Childress. That's that's. So, but yeah, Childress is um, Baltimore's friend from from being young. And then uh, the doctor, Lumel Rose, introduced by Childress as one of the finest surgeons in the continent. Dr. Rose is not amused by this. Demetrius introduces himself with a firm grip handshake from Childress, (laughs) which he liked. Wait, hold on, hold on. Like when you said he's not amused, I like it. He says, Dr. Rose raises an eyebrow and gave a dismissive (laughs) shake of his head as though finding the assessment of his reputation somehow amusing <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because he's the one that's missing fingers right too he's a surgeon yeah Taking yeah dr rose instead of shaking demetrius's hand pull out a cigarette and gestures towards an open chair lights a cigarette the two men invite Ashros to join them child dress offers to get him a whiskey dr rose and demetrius have an awkward silent moment with each other while they wait for the amiable and intelligent Childress to return with Asheros's drink. So de- and then they start talking. Dr. Rose mm-hmm. asks Asheros how it's hard to say Dr. Rose and Asheros. So Demetrius is probably better. Dr. Rose. It, <laughs> yeah. it is right. I keep fumbling. <laughs> um, Dr. Rose asks Demetrius how he knows Baltimore and basically says, you're not a soldier. I'm a sailor. Demetrius says and explains he offered his ship to the allies and would bring wounded men back from the war. Lord Baltimore being one of them, they found each other in similar disposition and became friends and travel companions. So I would like want to know they, and they traveled with each other too. Yeah. I guess they, they had adventure. Yeah. Other what are adventures, these adventures? Maybe. But I like how it says that, uh, I like how it says that he sent them to the meat grinder and then brought back mm-hmm. what was left or whatever. That's what it describes. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, that's pretty gruesome. Yeah. The doctor nodded. You knew him shortly after he left my company, after I had finished with him. You knew him during the war, Demetrius says. Dr. Rose smiled. Oh, yes. In the Ardness Forest. I'm the one who took off his leg. Acheros blinked at the surgeon, not knowing how to reply. A moment later, Childress returned with a pint <laughs> of warm ale for himself and a whiskey for the captain. The three men toasted to another and the absent Baltimore. It also goes through this like the comic book, like every time there's a noise by the door, they turn and look at the door, which is also sort of fun. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Chadras comes back and explains how he knew Baltimore and how he knew him most of his life. His family were close when they were children. He had not seen him in a while, and it was a surprise to see receive such a letter from Baltimore. They right, continue yeah. on discussing their thoughts on why they had been summoned there. The letters had told them they would meet two other men and if fate willed that he would join them. And then they hear a noise and they glance towards the door again. It's fun how they keep getting cued there. And then we get a little taste of that in the comic book too, which is fun. Child dress knows why he came there for Baltimore. Like he, he knows as a childhood friend, like he's like a brother, why he's there. It was part of their long relationship. But why the other men would rush to be at Baltimore side, he sort of asks. Dr. Rose smiled thinly and glanced at Ash Rose. The seaman stroked his mustache and considered the question. Curiosity, he said. Loyalty, perhaps. This is Ash Rose, I think, talking to a man I once called friend. But truly, it's a mystery. When I knew him, Lord Baltimore had shared with me a terrible story about the war. A tale of evil. I might never have believed him, except that I have seen terrible things in my life. Both in my travels with him... And on my journeys across the sea, a sailor sees many oddities traveling the world, wonders and horrors alike. Childress nodded knowingly. Dr. Rose studied Asheros almost as though he were afraid of the man. He told you how he acquired the wound that cost him his leg? Yes, at first I believed he had hallucinated much of it from loss of blood and fever, he interrupts. The doctor interrupts. Precisely what I thought at first. Childress leaned both elbows on the table and looked first at one man and then the other. Tell the tale then, gentlemen, for I've heard only whispers, but they make my soul uneasy, like many things I know of Henry Baltimore. The doctor and the sailor looked at each other. Asherosh gestured to the slender man. Yes, you were there with him then, in the heart of the war. With this invitation, Dr. Rose nodded. I was, and I shall never forget it. And that's it. Ah, and then we're going to go into it. I love that. Yeah, so I love this book because a lot of it is them telling <laughs> stories um, and we'll and we'll get into this uh, next story on our next Baltimore episode. But um, yeah, that was awesome. I really enjoyed this. Um, I just like taking a little, it, it's slowing down a little bit. You know yeah. what I mean? And being able to like really and the I wonder where some of these lines come from because they're so great. You know, like is it Christopher Golden? Is it Mignola? I wonder if Mignola is writing any of the actual book. You know what I mean? Or is he just like giving the broad strokes and Christopher Golden? You know what I mean? Like, I wonder See, what I, that. I thought that's kind of how it was. Is like he came up with like the broad strokes of it and Christopher Golden just went in. And Don't forget Ann Grohl. Don't forget Ann Grohl. Could be the me. editor. Editor extraordinary. Oh, yeah. Said. Yes, 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 yes. The editor. Yes. But some of the lines sound too much like Mignola, like stuff that's in Hellboy yeah. and Hell. You know how people talk in those comments, you know yeah. what I mean, and stuff like that? So, I think anyway. when, like, people collaborate, know, yeah, magic happens, you know what I mean? Like, some people can create magic on their own, but some something special happens when people collaborate. So I'm just going to think that it's probably that. Yes, and that's what happens when you're on the oh, show, thanks, Wes. We're collaborating, and magic is happening. Magic <laughs> oh, I love magic. Happening. Yeah. 
I mean, that was the, the, I mean, we went through the first two chapters, but it's, it's exciting. I do like how it's sort of fills different holes. It's definitely harder doing the podcast on a book or it's different. It's not harder. It's definitely different. Oh, I've, I've really enjoyed this. I mean, this is a lot of fun. It is nice. And like I said, like at the beginning with the uh, prelude where we got to see the battle, cause like in the, like in the comic, it's just like a couple panels and their pages or something. And, but this is like, it takes the time to kind of build the tension and it's just like, and then like the leading up to the city and all that that was all really cool and all that i'm just kind of curious to see um where this is all going to go because we're about to get the surgeon's tale and then you know the other tales the other tales and other tales so i'm i'm, I'm sure it's going to be like a parallel story to what we've read in um the omnibus right yeah so that's kind of interesting because a lot of the stuff in these two chapters references the comic heavily i mean we've seen a lot of this stuff in the comic but i want to say these next couple stories are not um, yeah. really reflected as much in the comic so yeah we get into like some different stuff that uh really cool yeah and it, it's just really kind of cool to see a world fleshed out you know and then it's also just kind of crazy to think about how like mignola's got like two completely separate worlds in his head yeah <laughs> <laughs> but then we talked about what was the the turnip that had a world inside of it when you guys did the episode with Matt from oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Right. the screw on head episode, the yeah. screw on head episode. Uh, like I think about that and then Mike Mignola did all those turnip head illustrations and like turnip head is also a character oh, in like right. Nathaniel Hawthorne movies is like a, or not movies, books. Like he's a scarecrow turnip head. But then to think like right. human head is a turnip and then they have this universe inside of it. Like he literally has a universe inside of his head. Mignola has multiple <laughs> universes inside of his head. Like the turnip. Yeah. Like the turnip. Yeah. Head. But then also, like you said, like going through a book is is a lot different than going through a comic, especially like when one person is like in another place. Because like when during the pandemic, we went through a couple of the Hellboy books by Mignola and Christopher Golden, and it was just like I was in my house, and John and Danielle were over here. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like, wait, where am I flipping through the book? Going, <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, that was great, Wes. Uh, we'll have you back next month to talk about the next chapter of this book. And then we'll, maybe we'll also have you on to talk about some Hellboy stuff, too. That would be yeah, really cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd love it. Yeah, so we'll definitely have you back on the episode soon. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. This was a fun one. We're getting to good stuff. It was. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody. That was the first uh, couple of uh, uh, entries into the Baltimore novel, The Prelude in Chapter One. And this was really good. If you haven't you know, read this before, I definitely recommend picking it up. If you like a, I mean, John, you said you read this book in like what, one sitting? Yes, I did. I actually read it in one sitting at work. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, hey, there you go. You know, it's a fast read. And if you have read it, I want to hear what you thought. Send us a... Hey, you damn guys at Book Club Member Comics at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Book Club Member Comics, and on Twitter if it hasn't imploded at Book Club Member. <laughs> you can find all of our resources on our Podbean website, our Facebook About sections, and our link trees on Instagram and Twitter. As always, a special thank you to Paul from Gotahan for the theme music. Thank you, Paul. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Ross and Matt Strackbine, for uh, designing our logos and our banners for us. Yes. You can find the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And when you're there, open it up and give us that five-star review. Every little bit helps. And if you like uh, what you're hearing, tell a friend. Have them join the book club. Do it. Yes, do it. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be reading Catwoman Lonely City Issue 3. So I'm stoked them. for that. 
Oh, me too. I really am. So get out those those trades, those floppies. I don't think it's in a trade yet. but The, the trade's dig- coming out. The trade is coming out, the digitals. And join us next week on Book Club Member Comics. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm a goblin. I'm a little tiny goblin in a box where you crank the music and I come out. No! <laughs> and I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, now it exists as a suck hole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to go to that suck hole. Ha, 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 ha.